Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Chapter 12 this morning, Romans chapter 12, and um, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 and 2 because we looked, um, we read the entire chapter a minute ago. We're going to be about three or four weeks probably, Lord willing, in chapter 12 because it is so strong and it is such a, um, it's such a directive to the body of Christ on how we live in light of the gospel. I struggle back and forth with what to title this message today on living in light of the gospel or the gospel for every believer. And since we've been talking about the gospel to every home, I thought it was, it was kind of a play on words to say uh, the gospel for every believer. Because I think we have a tendency sometimes to consider the gospel as the plan of salvation. And yes, that is. It's the message of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've seen that we are sinners uh, that need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. Um, and uh, so it, it is that message that we come to and that, that, that leads us to praying and trusting Christ. But beyond that, the gospel is something that we need every day. Because if it's good news, I don't know about you, but I need good news every day. Don't you? Isn't it depressing to just live in the continuous 24-7 news cycle that we see all the time? And it doesn't matter which side and which, which cable news channel you may prefer to watch. It's depressing to see the news around us. But here's the good news. There is a Savior who is a king. And he's king of a kingdom that is higher than this world. And he is one day going to establish his kingdom. And right now he wants to establish his kingdom in the hearts and lives of men and women all over the world through grace through Jesus Christ. So yes, believer, we need the gospel too. It's not just an entry point or a diving board into Christianity. It is Christianity. It is the message that sustains us. It is the message that feeds us today as well. And over the past several weeks, we were knee deep in, um, sometimes neck deep and often over our heads in chapters 9 through 11, right? 9 through 11 was a tough portion of scripture to work our way through. I'm thankful that the Bible commands us to preach and to teach the whole counsel of God because without it, there would be portions that we would just say, you know what? Let's just skip over that and go to something a little bit easier. But as we worked through it, we saw some amazing truths there. And as we closed out chapter 11 uh, last week, we looked at Paul's expression of praise. And I've been going back to that passage this week in my devotional time, just looking at it and making it a prayer to God. Oh Lord, how deep are, is your wisdom and how immeasurable is your works and how untraceable is your hand and, and those things. Understanding that God is God and I am not. And I know that that is a smack to our human pride, but man, it is such a, a feeding and benefit to the soul to realize I'm not God. God is God. And that means that God has got this. God has got me. God has got every moment in the palm of his hand and he is using everything regardless of what it may be. If we mean it for evil, God will turn it to good. So we saw through chapters 9 through 11 as well. God is in control. God is sovereign and he knows what he's doing. And that was Paul's expression of praise. It's an expression of praise that we should have as well. And even our wondering, even our questioning, even our, our rebellion serves as a catalyst to draw us back to him. Because yes, there's consequences for sin. Yes, there's things that cause us to wonder. But God is always merciful and gracious to receive us back and to forgive us. Chapter 11 not only closes out with that small portion of, uh, of chapters 9 through 11, but it also closes out a larger portion, which is chapters 1 through 11. 
through 11. So up until now, chapters 1 through 11, Paul's been dealing with the concept of the gospel, understanding what it is, understanding why we need it, understanding what God is doing in the gospel. But now in chapter 12, we're going to shift gears and we're going to be looking at the practice of the gospel. One, one commentator that I love to read, John Phillips, he broke down the, the, the narrative of Romans, the whole book of Romans, that you have the, um, the principles of the gospel. And then in chapters 9 through 11, we saw problems of the gospel that were solved. And now we look at the rest of it. We're going to be looking at the practical application of the gospel or the practice of the gospel. Did you know this, that the gospel is not just a message that we preach. The gospel is a life, is a way of life to live. That's what we're going to see in chapters 12 through 11, that we need to live in light of the gospel. So I want to jump in this morning and look at chapter 12. It says, it says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true worship. You may have a translation that says it's your reasonable service or it is your logical worship. It all kind of comes from that Greek to, to mean the same thing. And then it says in verse number two, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. Holy Father, I pray this morning that you would be glorified, that you would be edified, and you tell us in your word when you are lifted high, you will draw us to yourself. So I pray this morning that we would get out of the way, that we would get out of our own way, that I would get out of the way of what you're trying to say as your messenger today. Just speak this morning through me and speak through your word. Captivate us by what you have to say. Help us to learn to live in light of the gospel. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And the church said, amen. amen. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer talks about where he separates the gospel and what we practice as the, in the Christian faith from all other religions and all other faith systems in the world. He says this, every other religion operates by the principle of I obey, therefore I am accepted. Every other religion, there's this, this hierarchy, this I'll just keep climbing this ladder and once I reach some sense of enlightenment or once I reach some place of spiritual, uh, of spiritual growth, then the deity, whatever it may be, will accept me. I work my way towards forgiveness. I work my way towards immortality. But only in Christianity reverses that order. The gospel reverses that order to say, I'm already accepted, therefore I obey. Did you catch this? I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But in Christianity, the gospel, the gospel message screams, you are accepted. Even when you didn't deserve it. And what is our practical and reasonable response to such mercy and grace? It should be to obey. I obey because I've been given so much. I serve because I've already been given so much. I don't do so much so that I can be given because I've already been given everything I need. When Jesus died on the cross, when he shed his blood, when he rose from the grave, everything we needed for salvation was there. We just needed to receive the gift. He provided it all. He said, I accept you. God's signal to the entire world that he accepted us was turning his back on his son at the cross. So the question is, in light, as Paul says, therefore, in light of the mercy of God that we've looked at for 11 chapters, what does that do for you? 
Is it just a wonderful story for you to come and sing about and listen to and nod our head and amen on Sunday mornings? Or is it something that's going to really make a difference and it's really going to be a catalyst for how we live our lives? Because I believe this statement. I believe that the gospel changes everything. The gospel should change everything. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is powerful. It changes everything. It changes us from the inside out, and it should do that. That word, that very first word that we see in our text, therefore. The first word, that's like a great hinge that the door of Romans swings on. We've been living in the principles and understanding the gospel. Now we're supposed to walk through the door in chapter 12 and walk on into living in light of the gospel and living a gospel-centered life. Paul shifts in one word from how the gospel informs us and informs the lost how to get saved to how the gospel is also meant to transform those who are saved. Because getting saved is not just getting my get out of hell free card like I'm playing some cosmic game of Monopoly. It's not about passing go and collecting $200 or getting out of hell free. It's none of that. The gospel is to change me from the moment that I get saved. It doesn't just change my eternal destination. It changes me inside out right now. That's why the Bible says that when we are saved and we are in Christ, we are new creations. So for 11 chapters, we've been looking at what the gospel is, and now we're going to shift into unpacking what we need to do because of it. And he calls us to consider all we've learned and come to understand about the gospel and move forward in applying it and appropriating it in our lives all around the gospel. So in other words, here's the challenge. It really defeats the purpose of knowing the greatest news that the world has ever known if we don't allow it to have a great impact on how we live. What good is it to know let me ask you this, what good is it to know the cure to cancer if you never put feet to it and provide the cure? Or if you never, if you have cancer, to know the, the cure but never live the cure? What good is it to know the gospel if we never put feet to it and live in it, believe in it, and live according to it? John Phillips says it's typical of the teaching of the epistles that belief is always followed by behavior. Belief is always followed by behavior. What I believe should translate into action and that doctrine should always be followed by deeds. It's one thing to know what the word says, but man, how much more powerful is it to live what the word says? How much more powerful and how much more better for us is it to live what the word says as well? This is why so many people, want, this is why so many people struggle with Christians today because, oh, we know what the word says, but we don't live like we care about what it says. We live in opposition to what it says. So why Billy Graham used to say the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who profess Jesus with their lips but deny him by the way that they live. This is what an unbelieving world finds so unbelievable. And church, I believe we have a chance today at this, at this juncture in our culture with some of these issues right before us in our face with some of the Supreme Court decisions that have come to play, and we see just a cultural revolution taking place, that if we live by the word, we're going to stick out like a sore thumb, but we need to stick out like a sore thumb in love and grace and mercy, but not compromise on the truth of the word of God. Because the truth of the word of God is the path to life. To deny the word of God is the path to death, even though it may feel good all the way to it. So we must learn, therefore, in light of the mercies of God. And here's where I think we are in the church today, in the modern American church today, is we don't move past the therefore. 
We love the gospel. We love what the word has to say. We love coming and singing songs about his goodness and his salvation. We may even go so far as to tell somebody, yes, I'm a Christian or wear a Christian t-shirt or put on a Christian bumper sticker. But when somebody looks at you and says, okay, so what difference has the gospel really made in your life? It's like, oh boy, what am I, what do I tell them? Because a lot of times we're like a sprinter who has super glue on the bottom of his shoes stuck in the starting box. We keep stumbling over the therefore. Therefore, in light of the mercies of God, present yourself a sacrifice. If we just spend our Christian life stumbling over the therefore of the gospel, we'll never get to see the beauty of the other side, what Christianity, what your life is really supposed to be like and what it was meant to be, what the purpose of life in Christ is really all about. And here's a spoiler alert. If you're wondering what life is all about and wondering why you got saved and what what good it did for you, it's not all about you. It's not all about me. You see, God saved us for his glory. And that may sound like God is selfish, but God is not selfish. Because he didn't have to. He could have shown his glory by saying, you know what? Y'all don't want to follow what I say? I'm going to show you how big I am. Roll up his sleeves and just cosmically wipe us all out. But he didn't because he has grace and he has mercy and he has love. And he sent his son to redeem us. That's why he deserves our service. But we're stumbling over the therefore. So for the next several weeks, we'll be looking at what lies beyond the therefore of the gospel. So first of all, there's only two main points today. Aren't you happy about that? There's only two verses. But... You know, they're like, okay, pastor's not going to preach forever, but these verses are packed. So buckle up. No, I'm just teasing. All right, number one, the gospel is meant to, for the believer, the gospel is meant to challenge the believer. While the gospel is meant to inform the lost, the gospel is meant to challenge us as believers. It's, first of all, it challenges us to review God's mercy every day. In other words, don't move past the awe of grace right? Look what it says in our text. Therefore, brothers and sisters, what does it say? In view of the mercies of God, I urge you. What Paul is saying right there in that one phrase is saying, stop right there, pause, go back, read everything in chapters 1 through 11, review the mercies of God, and in light of that mercy, let's get to work. In light of that mercy, I am challenged by the mercy of God. What it's saying is, I am challenged and overwhelmed by the goodness of God on my life and the goodness of God to give himself for me when I don't deserve it. Reviewing the mercies of God also means we have to... (laughs) My boy over here is like, he's just distracting me. He's like just looking at me. You are a stone-cold stud. You really are. He's all over here like this, like... Preach it, brother. Uh, it's awesome, man. He's, he is awesome. Um, no, in light of the mercies of God, when we look and review the mercies of God, you know what else we have to do? We have to review how ugly our sin is. We really do. Because the mercies of God become so beautiful when we see how ugly and how horrible our sin really is. And this is why we don't like to review the mercies of God a whole lot. Because we don't like to admit that. But we have to. We review the mercies of God. It leads us to understand just how lucky we are and how fortunate we are to have a Savior. Pastor J.D. Greer shared with his church that he grew up looking at the gospel as like this entry point of Christianity. That the gospel was the story that compelled you to pray the prayer to be born again. The gospel was like this diving board that you jumped off into the pool of Christianity. Kind of like I said earlier. But for him, what he did was he looked at the gospel as being the message that was primarily for unbelievers and that since you were once saved, you were always saved. You move on from the gospel from the moment you get saved and you move into Christian growth that is gained by other means. 
by filling out some holy checklist or learning new Bible facts or learn, go, doing all the Bible studies that Lifeway has to offer and filling up journals with sermon notes and learning new techniques for convincing other people to become Christians and putting bumper stickers on your car and, and doing all of these things that would bring you up this ladder of faithfulness and ladder of Christian awesomeness and it would make God love you more. But he realized that his heart wasn't changing with all of those things that he was doing. Because his heart wasn't really set on God. His heart was set on JD. His heart was set on JD being like God rather than resting in the grace of God. And matter of fact, instead of moving him closer to God, it was having the opposite effect. Because he said he began seeing God as like this taskmaster up in heaven that was always asking for more and never seemed to be completely pleased. I'm kind of like that in my personality, man. I'm like, man, this is good, but it can get better. Anybody else like that? Like always wanting to just take that next step, right? It's really, really exhausting when, God, when you think God is like that with you. Yeah, yeah, Derek, that was good, man. You preached a great sermon, but man, you can do better. Rest in his grace. So JD said that he began to grow weary of it all and he came to a place where the closer his feet attempted to follow Jesus, the more his heart seemed to pull away. And he said it wasn't until returning to the gospel and the glory of the gospel and the grace of God and reviewing the mercy of God that nothing that he had to offer in his worst before all of these righteous things that he was doing, God already accepted him before all of that. So why would he accept him more now? And that's what the gospel reminds us of is there's not one thing you or I can do good to make God love you more and there's not one thing you can do bad to make him love you less. He just loves you. And when we live in the, in the light of that, it becomes, service becomes about gratitude and opportunity rather than obligation and tasks to click off a list. See, as believers, we need the gospel and we need a regular relationship with the gospel of Christ in order for this not to become mechanical and legalistic and systematic See, in our text, we, Paul finishes up the gospel and what did it produce in him at the end of chapter 11? What did it look at? We looked at it for two weeks. What did looking at the, the grace of God for 11 chapters do to Paul? He erupted in praise. Erupted in praise. And, and, and an understanding that, God, you are high above me. And I'm just lucky to be in your presence. Church, how would our worship look if that's the way we approached it? God, you are so high above me and I am just lucky to be in your presence. I'm just lucky. How often are we reviewing the mercies of God and how often do we return to the gospel to renew our faith? Like the song that says, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, where the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. Return to the cross, church. Return to the empty tomb. Return to those base things of Christianity. Don't move far from that. Because that's where we find the power and we find the will and we find the motivation to serve the Lord with gladness. It's a challenge to review his, his, his mercy, but it's also a challenge to live a gospel-centered life. Look at what it says again in verse number one. I, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So in light of the mercies of God, what do I do? I'm gonna present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Okay, he urges us. That word urge there means he's challenging, he's exhorting, he's begging, he's imploring us. It's a picture of someone like Paul is down on his knees saying, please, please give Jesus your all because he gave it to you. And he's not just saying that because Jesus needs you. He's saying that because you need that. 
We need him. What is Paul urging us to do? He says, present your bodies as living sacrifice. Now, for the Jewish reader, back when this was written in the first century AD, and for even for the pagan Roman at this time, they understood that word sacrifice a little bit differently than we do. We look at sacrifice and think, okay, I'm not going to get Starbucks today. I'm going to drink my dollar coffee at home so that I can have about four extra bucks to put in savings. But that's what we look at sacrifice as. Or we look at sacrifice as, oh man, my neighbor needs help, but I just turned on a new show on Netflix and man, I'm really going to sacrifice my time to go help my neighbor. That's our sacrifice. Sacrifice for them back then was blood and animals dying. Their idea of sacrifice was going to the temple and seeing an animal that was, you know, bled out and that covering their sins and sacrifice always resulted in death. Even in the pagan practices, they had blood sacrifices. Sacrifice for them always meant death. But here Paul says, I want you to present yourself as a sacrifice to God, but it doesn't need to be a dead sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. See, this is the beauty of the gospel. All other religions call us to die. But Jesus says, die to self so you can live to me. You will live as a sacrifice for me. God doesn't want us to die. God wants us to live. He wants us to live and live for him because what good is a cemetery full of people? What witness is a cemetery full of people when people could be living, having died to self and living to Jesus, sharing the gospel with others? So, the sacrifice always revolved around death, but here the gospel says a sacrifice is to live. But the problem with living sacrifices, guess what the problem with living sacrifices is? We always try to work our way off the altar. We always try to jump off the altar, don't we? Now, how many of you all of a sudden went back to the Old Testament and thought about Isaac laying on the altar about to be sacrificed, right? His obedience unto death. But yet God did not want Isaac's sacrifice he wanted the obedience, right? The sacrifice that we give is our obedience to him. The problem with living sacrifices is we have to continually lay ourselves down at the altar. We have to continually review the grace of God. And that prompts us to do that. We have to present ourselves in the light of the mercies of God. See, Christianity is predicated on this. Again, remember, Christianity is predicated on I'm accepted by God, therefore I obey not the other way around. So it's important to understand that Paul is not saying that you have to sacrifice anything in order to be saved. No. You sacrifice because you've been saved. It's my joy to give because I've been saved. Because I've been saved. This is why we struggle sometimes in church with generosity, isn't it? Because how much different would it be if your preacher got up and said every week, all right, we're about to take the offering. Now remember, if you don't give X amount of dollars, you could lose your salvation. How much more would you be prompted to give? But no, here's what God says. Give out of the cheerfulness of your heart. As God has compelled you. Well, how does God compel us to give? God compels us to give by his endless mercy and his endless grace. Because I've been given so much, it is my joy to be generous in return. It is my joy to give of my time for others. It is my joy to give of my talents to glorify God rather than bringing glory to myself. See, all sacrifices always ended in death, but only the gospel calls us to be a living sacrifice. And it's, some not, it's, it's a challenge as well, not to just review the gospel. It's a challenge to present ourselves, but it's also a challenge to worship without conditions. 
And see, that's what worship really is. But I think sometimes we approach worship with conditions, right? God, I'll praise you as long as there's something to praise you for. Right? I mean, let's, let's just get honest right now. I'll praise you as long as there's something to praise you for. I'll thank you as long as there's something to thank you for. But we see an example out of Job in the Old Testament that I'll praise you even in the midst of everything that's going wrong. Even though God gives and takes away, still I will say, blessed be his name. This is what so many people struggle with. God, you're not acting the way I expected you to act. Well, we just covered this. God acts in ways that we don't understand. Is he still praiseworthy? Yeah. Is he still praiseworthy? Let me just be real transparent. You know, through COVID and through all this, I, I had a completely different vision for how things would look when we moved over here to Graceway. I had a completely different vision. That, you know, we were seeing great momentum. We were seeing some growth and COVID hit and a lot of other things take place. And we see a lot more. It looks, look around, you see a lot more. It seems like there's people leaving. There's people checking out more than there's a lot of things going on, people coming in. And I'm like, God, why what is there to praise? What is there to honor him for? Man, there's plenty. Because there's a room full of people right here who have been redeemed by the grace of God. And we still have a gospel to proclaim. And we still have a message to get out. And we still have the ability to give to help centers around our, our, our state and home and, and the Hope Center and things like that. There's still work to do, folks. So we're supposed to praise them even when we don't think there's anything to praise for. Here, here, here's, here's a test that we have. And here's what the passage says. He says, I present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So that phrase right there, that true worship, that word true comes from logikos, which is what we get our, uh, our word for logic or rational and logic. He's basically, Paul is saying, in light of what God has done for you, doesn't it just make sense that you give everything to him? Right? Isn't it just logical that we would surrender our everything to Christ who gave his everything for us? And his everything far outweighs our everything, by the way. So in Romans 1, Paul says that the core of all of our sins is that we have a worship disorder. We have a broken heart when it comes to worship. We're created by God to worship him, but in our sin, we decided to worship other things. We decided to worship money or sex or fame or power or any number of things or pride or whatever it is that we seek to worship. The gospel declares that there is nothing and no one more worthy of worship than Jesus Christ because nobody has given more to you than Jesus Christ. The answer that we're looking for when we ask who's given more than God? No one. No one. And I knew that that would get some amens and some nodding heads. Because that's like red meat to throw out to the church. When you say God is good, yeah, man, that's like red meat. But let's just take a real quick test to see how prone to idolatry we really are. I'm going to ask you some questions and answer these questions honestly. You may want to write the answers down or you may want to just tab them in your head. If I could change blank about myself, I would do it in a heartbeat. What is it that you would want to change about yourself the most? The thing that keeps you up at night thinking, man, if this were just different about me. I'd be happy and I'd do it in a heartbeat and I'd give anything to do it. Next question is, through my life, what have I been most willing to sacrifice for? What am I most willing to give up in order to get? What has made me the most bitter in my life? The thing that just nags you and even on your happiest day, it'll just bring the dark clouds in. What is it that I can't forgive? 
What is it that I'm willing to lie for? Where do I turn for comfort when my life is not working out? And here's a big one. Whose approval do I have to have in order to feel complete? See, whatever you wrote down or whatever you thought of more than once, chances are that's probably an idol in your life. If it's not God. You see, we're all prone to this idolatry, right? Is there anything wrong with the things that you wrote down? Probably not, right? But when they displace God as your source of joy, as your source of fulfillment in life, we've missed the mark of the gospel. Because what did Paul say? In light of the mercy of God. Not in light of the, not in light of the mercy of God and all the education you got. In light of the mercy of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice. So the gospel is meant to challenge us as believers to review his mercy and to present ourselves as sacrifices and to worship him and to worship him alone. You know, I think, honestly, this is, this point number one has been a message in and of itself, really. We're going to look at just verse number two next week, actually. So we'll spend another week in Romans chapter 12. We're just going to let it just, we're just going to ride that wave, right? But it's a challenge to us as believers. It's a challenge, number one, it's a challenge to review the mercies of God. So as we get ready to close out this morning, I just want to ask you this. When have you really done inventory on the mercy of God in your life? I know that there's that old hymn that says, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. But let's just strip it all down and leave all of what we're focusing on at the cross. Let's not think about the things that we chalk up as physical blessings, monetary blessings just yet. Is the cross and the empty tomb enough to compel your worship? Is it enough to compel your worship? The bloody cross that covered your sins. The empty tomb that gives you victory and life everlasting over that. Does that compel your worship? There's an old, old hymn that was written centuries ago. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Hmm. Take just a moment. Picture that cross. Picture Jesus on it. Suffering and dying. And picture your sins. That blood just washing over that. Does that compel our worship? Does that compel me to live differently? It's a challenge to review the mercies of God every single day. It's a challenge that we live a life that's centered on the gospel of Jesus. To present my body, to present my everything as a living sacrifice. That I wake up now every day with a different purpose of just going to work, making the money to get by, coming home, being a good dad, being a good husband. And trying to find some entertainment in my life. I live for a purpose that is higher than all of that. And all of those things come together to be for a purpose of bringing glory to the one who gave so much to me. In essence, the Christian life is about bringing glory to the one who sent glory to me. So am I living a gospel-centered life? And also, am I worshiping him without conditions? Am I saying, God, you have my life. You have the steering wheel. You're not my co-pilot. You're the pilot. You have it. 
Where you lead, I will follow. Where you send, I will go. And I, there are no stipulations to this contract of salvation that we've made. You are my king. I am your child. These are the questions that the gospel calls us to, to think about. Because sometimes we lose track of it, right? We lose track of what this is all really about. Sometimes we can just think, well, I'm safe, so I'm going to heaven, so that's great. I've, I've got that, and so I need to focus on what I got here. No, no, no. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him, and it will give you perspective in everything. In everything. The greatest struggle that we have in our day and age, in our day and age, where it says, do not be conformed to this age. We're going to look at that next week. The biggest problem we have in our day and age is whether God is God or not. And I'm not just talking about out there. I'm talking about in here. The biggest problem we have in the church in our age today is whether God is really God. Because we still try to be God. So that's the question this morning. When I review the mercies of God, does it compel me to worship? When I review his goodness, does it compel me to be, to be grateful for him. As we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, I know the message was primarily to believers today. But maybe in, 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 in considering the word and considering the message this morning, maybe you realize, I, I, I don't know for sure if I'm, if I'm saved. I don't know for sure if I have put my faith and trust in Christ. If you haven't, let today be the day that you not only just commit to him, but you surrender to him as your Lord and as your Savior that he can have it all, that I will be a living sacrifice for him. Church, I ask you this question, is there a recommitment, a rededication that needs to be made? Hey, Lord, man, I've, I've taken heaven and I've taken my salvation for granted, man. I've just kind of taken it and I've put it on the shelf and I'm gonna grab it when I take my last breath. But man, it should make a difference for how I'm living today and it's really not. Maybe you need to come today and say, God, I just need you to give me the mind of Christ. I need you to change my perspective. I need you to change the way I think, the way I react, that I live a gospel-centered life. Or maybe it's, Lord, whatever I've been holding back from you, here it is. I hold nothing back now. Whatever it may be today, take the opportunity, as the word has spoken, to respond to it. Father, do your will in us and through us this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And the church said, amen. As we... Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.